To stay on top in business, stay on top of your technology with the new Business Desk podcast, the business of tech. Listen on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Weekend Collective podcast from Newstalk ZB. Right now, we're going to kick off with um, international news uh, because there have been developments in the Middle East as the UK and the US militaries have launched a third round of joint attacks on the Houthis in Yemen in response to Iran. Uh, well, they are an Iran-aligned group, despite what Iran says. Uh, their attacks on commercial ships and uh, and the Red Sea. And, of course, there were three um, US servicemen killed, which provoked a significant response from the US just uh, a day or so ago. Uh, the attacks, I gather, were supported by forces from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, Denmark, the Netherlands, and us here in New Zealand. Um, the recent attacks carried out on 36 targets in 13 locations, and comes as the US launched strikes on 85 targets yesterday in Syria and Iraq in response to a deadly drone attack on the US military base. So, anyway, there's the intro. International law professor Al Gillespie said US President Joe Biden, he said uh, that is now faced with a difficult decision. We've got a US election on the horizon. Uh, you've got to do something, look strong, and um, take some action. And Al Gillespie uh, joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So, um, look, legal assessment-wise, in your view, how do the U.S. actions um, align with U.S. Inter- sorry, align with international law? Well, I think the simplest term for it, it's a mess because you've got a number of strikes that are occurring in other people's countries, and those countries don't consent to what's going on, and that's most obvious right now with with Syria. You've got discontent in Iraq. Um, Yemen's a completely contested space. And so in an ideal world, what you'd have is all these debates would be taken to the Security Council at the UN, and you'd have it hashed out. But Mm. we're not in an ideal world. And so right now, it's not so much law as power. And countries are trying to act with a lot of force to deter each other. Isn't that often the case when when push comes to shove because you've got the security council with the you know China and Russia having the right of veto is the UN anything does the UN have anything useful to bring to this it's getting harder and the, the trend with the the veto is getting worse and the areas that we get in agreement are getting fewer and so it's obviously not just what's happening in the middle east it's also what's happening in the ukraine and other contentious parts around the world. Mm. The problem is it's the only alternative we've got, and so we've got to keep trying to find agreement where we can. But what you're seeing right now with this expansion of the use of force is that America is trying to deter Iran without hitting Iran. And some people will say, it's being argued that they should just hit Iran, but if you do that, you've got a regional war. And so what they've gone for is this very wide approach where they've hit three different countries at the same time. Hmm. Whether that will deter them is an open bet, but I think it's unlikely. Whether it will deter the Houthis, you mean? Well, you know, when you start trying to bomb these people from afar, it's, uh, I think it's unlikely that they're going to stop fighting. I think it's unlikely that they're going to stop shooting cruise missiles into the Red Sea. Hmm. And the, the risk is that the whole thing escalates, not just with regards to the Red Sea but also with regards to Israel and the Gaza conflict. Mm. And you can find a lot of borders there that will suddenly become quite moving very quickly. Yeah. It's not what you want, but the, the problem for us in New Zealand is that we're, we're signed up to def- defend the Red Sea. And that you know we're, we're there to defend what we classify as international waters, and that's justifiable and good. 
but many of these things are now starting to blur and so you go in for one reason and then you end up fighting for another. What's the support within, um, in terms of Biden's decisions to attack those 85 targets and, and further, what's the support within the USA for him and within Congress? Yeah, huge. It, it's, the one thing that unifies Americans is that they don't like to see their soldiers killed. Yeah. And they they expect a response. That They expect a response because they need to retaliate and they need to be able to deter those people from doing it again. The challenge is that some of these countries that are doing these acts want America to retaliate, and, mm. and that will draw the conflict, but not to act at all, which would have been one of Biden's choice, would have made him look weak, and he needs to look strong right now with the American election coming up in November. Well, he had to act, really, didn't he? You couldn't let something like that go unanswered. I mean, who would there be many people that say that he should have done nothing? Some people would argue that, but he, what he's did is he, he chose the, the middle option. He could have done nothing. He could, or if we're honest, he could have attacked the puppet master, hmm. but he he chose to attack those in the middle. And whether Iran can actually control those groups in the middle, that that's an open debate. And whether those groups will actually now say, okay, we've been hit, we're now going to behave, hmm. I think is very questionable because it's, in my assessment, I think it's more likely they're going to lash out. And that that's, you know, that these groups want to fight, that they want to pull America into the conflict. And yeah. getting stuck in a conflict in the Middle East is a, is a huge risk. But turning a blind eye to it is an equally big risk. Is there any distinction to be drawn between targets in Syria and Iraq? The Iraq has been rebuilt, and we were part of the rebuilding process. I mean, Kiwi troops were there helping retrain the Iraqi army, and we did a great job. But there, there is the Iraqis have actually said that you know we don't consent to the American airstrikes in our in our area, even though they've been rebuilt by America. With Syria, you've already got American troops in the region because they're, they're fighting Islamic State, and with Russian troops and other troops of other countries, and none of that's consented to. It, it, none of it's legal, and so you're in this very grey area where people are occupying territory, airspace and using military strikes without the consent of the government that's there because they say that the government that's there can't control the rebels that are causing the problem. Mm. What about what do you th- what do you see as the role of the you know the advanced military technology that they use in these conflicts? What are you what's your take on on how accurately they manage to target what they want to target? The the new technology is very smart and if it's programmed incorrectly it should just hit military uh, destinations and military personnel and, and that's important because the optics of it are you don't want to have collateral damage of civilians but you're also seeing a flexing like with the use of certain uh, certain firepower like, like the, the bombers that the Americans are using. Some of them are being flown from the United States and this is showing not just the Middle Eastern countries but also other countries around the world the, the reach and power mm. of the American military right now. I was wondering about the symbolism of that because it's not like you'd, you'd think they would have had other options that were closer at other bases, but they sent it from the States. Was that itself, do you think, a particular statement from them? I think that was a statement directed to other countries that weren't in the Middle East, yes. Mm. And because they could have done the strikes and they will continue to do the strikes and you can do it with cruise missiles, you can do it with things which is going to be very low risk for your own personnel because the one thing you don't want is one of your pilots to be shot down or some or some no. kind of risk like that. No. And so you can carry up from afar. And, and the technology is getting smarter and it's getting faster. Yeah. But at some point, you've still got to patrol the waterways, which means you've got to have frigates around the Red Sea. 
to make sure that the pirates don't come in. And so that's not a matter of cruise missiles. That's a matter of having good vessels in the water. Yeah. How, our how, friend, sorry. Sorry. No, you go. Well, our, our friends like Canada and Australia have already been asked if they would provide frigates for that purpose. And, and so far they've said no, but you can expect that if the situation escalates, those who have pledged to defend it, like New Zealand, will also get asked at some point in the future. Mm. So, uh, d- Iran denying involvement in the attack, it's, um, in the attacks, it's probably quite important, really, isn't it? Because then it, that creates a, another degree of separation between the United States and the USA when, when the USA attacks the proxies. Because if Iran said, oh, you were right in there, then it would be worse, wouldn't it? Completely. Oh. Uh, and, and so... But Iran's trying to maintain plausible deniability at every step that these acts and tensions and aggravations are not their responsibility. But many people would suggest that these groups have been armed and trained and financed directly from Iran. And so whether you accept that or not will often depend upon how you look at the evidence. What's what's your take on how how, on Iran's involvement? Obviously, they get their, their arms through various means from Iran. Uh, how, what's I your take? Some, some of them are direct puppets. I, I think that they've got um, a direct control to Iran. But if you strike Iran, then the conflict will change. And even though Iran is a struggling country, it is still very powerful militarily. The, the good news, though, is that Iran is not tied to China or to Russia in terms of military alliance. Yeah. So if it had to fight, it would fight alone. What do you make of Iran's rhetoric around it then? Well, a couple of hours ago, they said it was a strategic mistake that the, the 85 strikes and that it was going to destabilise the region. Um, we shall see. And I think part of the problem with Iran right now is that because it's a fragile country, they need a conflict with an external enemy to help galvanise their own population. And there's nothing like fighting the great Satan. <laughs> I guess you could cynically say that that could apply to any politician, including the United States, wouldn't it? That's true, that's right, because often an external enemy is a great way to garner support domestically. Okay, look, um, getting on to New Zealand then, what do you think our stance should be and uh, have we got, we've sent a six-member defence force has been deployed for the Red Sea protection. Is that too much, enough, not enough? Should New Zealand stay out of it? What's your take? Uh, To defend international waterways is consistent with international law. And I think that that is justifiable. I think sending the first six people in is a good step to begin with, but we need to be careful if it escalates. And one of the risks right now is that it appears people think they're going up for one reason, and in fact it's something else. So we have to maintain as much as we can a a clear independent foreign policy and take each step very carefully. One of the more larger problems I'm concerned about is the actual suitability of our military. I think it, it, it's underfunded, it needs new kit, it needs new resources and so you're going to see that and I expect in the coming months, if not years, we're going to need more reliance on the military than we have for the last few decades and that means we're going to have to pay catch up. But and in a time when the government's not wanting to spend more money, it's going to create a difficult problem because we can't send yeah. our personnel up there with material which is not fit for purpose. Well, we need more people too, don't we? We need people, we need to pay them fairly, yeah. and we need to make sure that any young man or woman in the New Zealand Defence Forces is not put at unnecessary risk. Mm. And so that's difficult because that costs money and the government's trying to save money. Okay, um, lucky last question, I, I guess. Um, 
what's the international view of New Zealand's contribution to these things? Because a lot of the domestic comment, it seems that, mm, I'd say, people are quite comfortable with us doing less than maybe other countries do. What's the international view of our in, involvement well, in these things? Well, it, it'll depend who you ask. And, mm. But often... Our if, allies, I guess. Do they think we're pulling uh, our weight? No. Our allies would like us to do more. And there's certainly some big issues coming up, like whether we uh, adhere to the AUKUS agreement, for example. And so a lot of our friends, traditional friends, good allies, would like us to do more, both in terms of deeper engagement, more military commitment, and more money spent. Whether we can actually opt out of that and still say that we're a good global citizen is a very difficult debate. And we're facing debate in this generation that we have not had for a very long time. Because I guess our government are more inclined to maybe play ball on that aspect, aren't they? I think both governments, to be fair, were. I think the Labour government did a lot of good work in getting the reports done for the Ministry of Defence, for Foreign Affairs, for SIS, everyone showing that the the situation was changing and Mm. it was stormy seas ahead. And they've prepared a platform that is now for this government to act on. And as much as you can, you want Mm. this kind of foreign policy to be non-partisan. Yeah. because you're representing the security of our country and it's not the kind of thing that we should be splitting hands about. Uh, look, obviously it's a key area of interest for you, um, what's going on and for many of us. How worried are you at, at this stage about the developments? Obviously it's easy to say we're all worried, we don't like what's going on in Israel, um, Gaza, the Houthis, the Red Sea, but uh, where are you at um, in terms of where it could go and where we hope it doesn't? The, the worst situation is that it escalates and it will escalate when it spreads and if it spreads then the demand will be for more involvement in those regions yeah and right now we're going in the wrong direction yeah. because some of the some of these areas cannot be solved even though we're justifiable and being there they cannot be solved by international forces they've got to be done regionally yeah. and so you've got to be very cautious about sort of like creating a situation getting a type of calm and then putting your soldiers in to try to rebuild a peace where you're not welcome to begin with. Yeah. Um, well, it's, uh, well, it's not going to be the last time we talk about this. Um, Al, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks so much. For more from the Weekend Collective, listen live to News Talk ZB weekends from 3pm or follow the podcast on iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will love our New Zealand Herald podcast, The Little Things, hosted by me, Francesca Rudkin, and my good friend, Louise Airy. We focus on all the little things that you can do to make a positive impact on your life and to cut through the confusion from the health and wellness industry. Join us every Saturday to hear from the experts for all the tips and advice you need. Just search The Little Things on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.